0: Um, Do I dream of cougars? Yes, I do dream of cougars. Um, And to be honest, most of the dreams happen either the night before I capture one or the night after I capture one. And I'm thinking about its well-being and hoping everything is fine (laughs) and uh, or or some like event of the day. So I do have dreams of cougars from time to time. And uh, they're usually pretty cool.
1: Welcome back to the Voices of Greater Yellowstone podcast where we share the stories and science of the remarkable Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. I'm your host, Kristin Kuhn. Panther, Painter, Mountain Screamer, Catamount, Ghost Cat, Puma. These are just a few of the regional and colloquial names for an elusive carnivore that stalks the wilds of Greater Yellowstone. It's an animal many folks go their whole lives sharing habitat with without seeing even once in the wild. Here in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, it is more commonly known as the mountain lion or cougar. Today we are sitting down with Daniel Stahler of Yellowstone National Park. Dan is a wildlife biologist who has been working in the park for 25 years and, among many other things, serves as project leader of the Yellowstone Cougar Project. We discuss everything from how to confidently identify mountain lions, to how they quietly reintroduce themselves to Yellowstone after being nearly hunted out of existence in the early 20th century, to how the Yellowstone Cougar Project keeps tabs on the park's few dozen cats today. And of course, Dan shares some memorable stories from his time in the field working hands-on with these magnificent animals and their mega-cute offspring. So, grab your house cat and curl up with us for episode nine of the Voices of Greater Yellowstone podcast, Yellowstone's Resilient Cougars.
0: Well, it's great to be here with you today, Kristen. Uh, my name is Daniel Stahler, and I am a wildlife biologist for Yellowstone National Park. And I wear a number of different hats in that role. Uh, I serve as the project leader for the Yellowstone Cougar Project. I'm the project biologist for the Yellowstone Wolf Project, and I help manage the elk research program here. And I also uh, serve as the uh, Section 7 biologist for the park, which works with the fish and wildlife to do consultations for endangered species, so grizzly, lynx, um, whenever there's a park project that might have impacts, uh, we do mitigation and compliance, and uh, I kind of provide some of that expertise for the park in that coordination with that agency. So, um, and I've been out here doing that since uh, 1997, was when I first came here, uh, but officially started working for the Park Service in 2002.
1: Oh, wonderful. So, uh, busy guy to say, say the least. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about your journey getting to Yellowstone? So, how did you find yourself as a wildlife biologist wearing all those many, many hats <laughs> in Yellowstone?
0: So I was born and raised in Vermont in the very northeast part of the state. We call it affectionately the Northeast Kingdom. It's this magical land that's this very rural part of the state just south of the Canadian border, kind of in that transition between uh, sort of the hardwood maple forests into the boreal forest. And, you know, I grew up uh, surrounded by dairy farms and thick forests and Uh, you know, just enjoyed my time in that area of trying to connect with nature. I was outdoors all the time with my brothers, playing in the woods, hunting and fishing. Uh, And I have pretty deep roots going back quite a few generations in that area. And growing up in Vermont, um, you know, I was always interested in working with animals. Uh, Again, I was kind of surrounded by, you know, cows (laughs) growing up in dairy farm country. Uh, But whenever I could, I was trying to be out there looking for white-tailed deer or moose or bears or um, coyotes or or whatnot, and uh, it was that was definitely very deeply connected with nature in my childhood, and kind of always dreamed of a day when I could. Work with the animals. Um, you know, as a young child, I always wanted to be able to communicate with animals. That's a pretty common theme uh, for young kids growing up in those sorts of places. Uh, you know, I think probably like many others had a bout of you know wanting to be a veterinarian, and and then I kind of grew grew out of that area when I kind of realized really connecting with nature and wildlife was kind of my my passion. I, I did my undergraduate degree at Middlebury College. Um, And uh, which is a small liberal arts school. Uh, And then when I graduated um, from Middlebury in '96, I kind of sought out my first wildlife job. And I really was fortunate because I uh, was able to get a position as a technician on a wolf study in the boundary waters in Minnesota. That was a dream come true for me, you know, just uh, being able to uh, get on to a program. you know, working with wildlife, but particularly wolves. And, you know, I loved wolves as a kid. I think I have a, I have a book from my parents when I was in the eighth grade about, you know, they inscripted, um, you know, we hope you follow your dream to become a wolf biologist and, uh, and, you know, ended up following down that route. So I was pretty determined to kind of pursue my interests. Uh, and when I went to Minnesota, basically my job where there was to trap and radio collar wolves in the boundary waters. And that was an incredibly, uh, uh, valuable experience that kind of set the trajectory uh, of my career in many ways. Um, and that was a long-term study on wolves and moose and deer in the Superior National Forest to working with the, um, you know, one of the top wolf biologists, uh, David Meech. And then that linked me up to Yellowstone when I completed that job. And so I came out to Yellowstone National Park for the first time to work in 1997, about just a little over 25 years ago. And that was at a time where wolves had just, of course, been reintroduced to the park. Um, When I showed up, we still had a handful of wolves in the pens that we were feeding. uh, And and I got right in on the ground when the research was starting up. So I showed up in 97, became a technician, a volunteer technician, and became one of the first graduate students uh, working on the wolf project. I ended up studying uh, for my master's degree Ravens and their relationship with wolves. And that was kind of a big question is, you know, bringing wolves back to a place like Yellowstone, what was going to be their impact on the ecosystem? And I was particularly interested in that connection to the scavenger guild. And so I did my master's degree through the University of Vermont, actually, because I worked with a gentleman named Baron Heinrich, who was doing a lot of uh, great raven research at the time. And he became my advisor. He's a pretty well known natural history writer as well. And I connected with him, did my field work in Yellowstone, and was able to get my master's degree doing that. And, and then, right after I finished that in 2000, I got the opportunity to work on the Yellowstone Cougar Project. And that was at the time led by the Hornocker Wildlife Institute, transitioned into the Wildlife Conservation Society that uh, became the uh, uh, the folks running that cougar project. And I worked for this incredible biologist. Her name was Tony Ruth. She was a great mentor, um, just an incredible biologist that taught me a lot. And I worked for that program under Tony for about a year and a half. And then the position for the park service as the project biologist for the wolf program opened up in 2002. And so I was hired for that. And so that brought me to Yellowstone and, and kind of, I haven't left ever since. So.
1: Huh. What an incredible story. You know, you like you've been saying, have worked with um, an incredible array of animals already and some of the really iconic heavy hitters of our area. But today we're going to hone in on the cats uh, because we do want to talk to you about mountain lions. And, you know, we know that these animals have a lot of names. uh, Mountain lions, cougars, catamounts, pumas, ghost cats, the list keeps going. What do you call them and why do you think they have so many different names.
0: So I admittedly interchange their common names here as well. We, The title of our research project is called the Yellowstone Cougar Project, and I think many of us working with them in this part of the country in the Rocky Mountain West would refer to them as cougars or other, also more commonly, mountain lions. Um, they, uh, once in a while, I'll just say lion or cat, um, uh, but cougar is a pretty typical name, um, and, and in fact, they have the uh, Guinness Book of World Record for the most common names for a species. Oh, um, no way. Yeah. And uh, of course, there's a lot of names that you just mentioned. Um, and, uh, but there's a lot of indigenous native cultures names as well and their respective languages uh, to identify these animals. The scientific name is Puma concolor. Uh, it used to be Thelis conchalor, but in 1995, they switched the genus to Puma conchalor. Um, and the word conchalor, the species name, the Latin for that is of uniform color. Uh, and that kind of describes that, you know, unlike other of uh, the big cats, uh, medium-sized cats are not spotted other than the young of the year. Um... And they're kind of that nice uniform, sort of tawny brown, reddish brown. And so that kind of, uh, and and they are that wherever they're distributed. You know, historically, they're one of the most, uh, they are the most widely distributed terrestrial mammal in the Western Hemisphere. They range all the way historically from... Uh, the Yukon of Canada, all the way to the tip of South America. We all think of wolves as being very widely distributed around the world, which they are, circumpolar, uh, circumpolar distribution, and, and of course southern areas as well. But the cougar, really in the Western hemis- Hemisphere, is the king of that distribution. So because of that, you know, if you think of human cultures connecting with this animal, uh, um, you know, they're in. in Many cultures are exposed to them, so they have their own names for them. And that kind of explains that, you know, that large variety of common names that we attribute to them. But the puma, you know, people are like, what, well, you know, is it a different species? And mm-hmm. you know, why do you call it this? It's sort of a regional uh, uh, naming system. So,
1: Gotcha. And do you see any um, variances in the cats as they are distributed across the hemisphere? Are there subspecies or do you see any regional kind of adaptations or is it pretty much the same same critter up and down?
0: you do see different subspecies and different distributions uh, and features that kind of relate to them. I mean, they all are pretty um, uniform. I think if you get down into South America and look at some of those cats down there, they tend to have some um, slightly different sort of morphological distinction that you'll see. And um, but um, and then, you know, you, you'll look at a, a cat from, you know, a Florida panther and you kind of look at its overall uh, body shape and they're kind of sometimes seem lankier and uh, thinner and um, a slightly different proportioned. but compared to a, a cougar in Yellowstone, um, I think cats into the northern uh, more into the northern part of their distribution that deal with more winter climate. Their fur can take on a slightly different sort of uh, characteristic um, to deal with the colder elements. Um, but in general, they're pretty pretty similar looking everywhere <laughs> every you see them. so.
1: And actually, this is a, a perfect segue because I know that a good number of other alleged mountain lion sightings turn out to be other cats, other felids, bobcats commonly. So how can someone tell if the animal they're looking at is truly a cougar as opposed to a bobcat or just a really healthy house cat?
0: Yeah, great, great question. I mean, they, you know, compared to those other, other felids that you just mentioned, they are larger. Um, I think one of the, you know, the very obvious characteristics of seeing a cougar is the long tail. You know, it's about two-thirds the length of the body, um, and they, you know, have an overall long body. I think, in general, cougars are a lot smaller than people think. We often like to sort of exaggerate you know, the carnivores in our world, you know, the huge uh, cougar that roams out there, or the giant wolf. And... Um, um, you know, so, you know, people have always told me that, you know, they saw, no one ever sees a small cougar. They all see a large <laughs> cougar, right? <laughs> uh, whether it's a hunter or someone, you know, it's always like, you know, 300 pounds. And, uh. um, but, um, you know, and compared to those other fields, they are larger, They're about three, you know, I'd say about, um, 30 inches An adult male will be about 30 inches at the shoulder. Um, so maybe not as tall as people think they are. Uh, and um, and so they're not as large in mass and not as tall, but certainly compared to a bobcat, which has the shorter tail, a lynx has the shorter tail, your house cats are just you know, significantly smaller. Uh, But just the other day, we had someone report some mountain lions out in a part of the northern range of Yellowstone, it ended up being a sighting of some marmots. So, you know, it's easy to get, that was through a scope way in the cliff band in the distance. So, you know, people get excited and and can kind of create the image of what they want to see. Um, uh, But um, another really common characteristic of these animals is just they're incredibly muscular. Um, they, they kind of look like bodybuilders and you compare that to, let's say, you know, another top predator here in Yellowstone, like the wolf, um, you know, wolves are, are muscular too, but like the dog, they tend to be more lanky. I mean, cougars are just, you look at a cougar, it doesn't matter if it's a female or a male, and it just looks like they got back from lifting weights at the gym. And They're just bulging <laughs> muscles on their forearms, a really muscular tail that's corded and powerful. They use that as part of their movement and their balancing, counterbalancing. Um, and, uh, and that, that muscular, muscular nature to them is really key to them as an ambush um, stalking predator. Um, so very powerful. They do have that, again, like their scientific name suggests, that uniform brownish color. Um, so yeah, the long tail, uh, the uniform brown, tawny brown reddish uh, body color, um, very muscular forearms uh, and hindquarters and tail, uh, muscular head, uh, and of course that varies between male and female, but that's kind of your overall basic description of them.
1: Yeah. Great. Well, thank you for that. That's, that's really, really oh, yeah. helpful. Um, so, you know, pretty, pretty hard to dis- differentiate from a marmot, I'd say.
0: Yes. Um, based on that description. Yes.
1: Um, so what can you tell us about just the cougar's life cycle? Just ta- mm-hmm. tell us a bit about what it means to be that animal.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, they are, we kind of think of the cougar, we describe them as being a solitary carnivore. Uh, I think that depends depiction needs a little bit of, uh, nuanced, you know, framing because, you know, yes, unlike wolves, they don't live in packs or large family groups. Um, females and males have a slightly different life history. Uh, and that is, um, uh, the, the mating system of a cougar is that the males will come together, um, only to join up with the females to breed. They spend a couple days together. They copulate, uh, if it's successful, Um, The female uh, then has kittens, the male leaves and plays no role in raising those offspring. And so the female cougar is sort of the ultimate single mom that basically does all the work to raising these young kittens. And these kittens are um, after about a 92 uh, day gestation period um, are born. Uh, one thing that's interesting about cougars, again, I kind of comparing a lot with wolves, just because I find the contrast interesting uh, because they, they're both here together. Um, wolves have a, Female wolves have an estrus cycle once a year. It's typically in this area uh, of the country is usually in February. Uh, a female, Cougar will actually cycle uh, about once every 28 days, so they can oh theoretically goodness. get bred at any time of the year. Um, and again, after that 90 some odd day gestation period, can produce a litter of kittens of anywhere between one and four, up to five or six in rare cases. Um, and uh, and so what we do see are birthing pulses, though, where females tend to uh, give birth to kittens in the summer months. May, June, and July is very common here in Yellowstone. We've had litters of kittens born um, in the middle of the winter. Um, but they are typically born in the summer months and that probably overlaps at the time when food resources are more readily available to a mother. Um, you know, she has a lot of energy expenditure to lactate, to feed those kittens milk and then eventually meat. And so having kittens in May, kind of timing it when you get elk calf neonates or deer fawn neonates, which are those uh, first born fawns and calves of the year is really uh, key for her to be successful feeding those growing offspring. The male goes off and you know does his own thing. Another distinction between uh, them is how they use space and home ranges. we have We describe female cougars as not necessarily having territories that they actively defend from other females, um, but home ranges uh, that they use for space to raise offspring to hunt um, and that often overlaps with other female cougars, often their relatives, daughters, sisters, but not always um, and and those home ranges, at least in Yellowstone, are approximately you know two hundred and fifty square kilometers. Um, and uh, and males have you know up to twice the size. We tend to describe mountain lion or cougar males as having uh, territories because they do actively defend those from other males, and they're larger and tend to overlap multiple females' home ranges because males are really concerned about having space uh, uh, that holds multiple females that they can control breeding opportunities for, and they will keep other males out. New males will come in and challenge them. They fight to the death at times. Um, You do have infanticide where a new male coming in might kill kittens. Um, We know know of this, we're familiar with this with other species, um, whether it's bears or African lions is commonly thought of with infanticide. Uh, And that, you know, is thought to, uh, uh, again, because of the cycle of females, kick them into an estrus cycle again and breed and produce kittens of their own with those females. So those are some basic differences there in terms of just the general patterns of a year-round life cycle. Young kittens will stay with their mothers um, up to two years of life. Average oh, wow. dispersal is around 18 months. It can happen anywhere between 12 months and 24 months typically, but it's usually somewhere in between uh, the first and the second year those those kittens are then become subadults adults and then they leave off on their own. You tend to have females stay closer to home, shorter dispersal. Males that leave their mothers tend to have longer reign dispersal, and that's to avoid breeding with their mothers and sisters. And that's a very common behavior of male bias dispersal or female bias dispersal, depending on the species we're talking about. Uh, but that's how it usually works uh, uh, with, uh, with cougars. That said, we've had some of our female cougars move quite far and disperse out of Yellowstone. We had one of our collared females, who was born and raised right here outside of Gardner on Mount Everts, disperse and, and head over to Hebgen Lake, and then make a trip all the way back to the Northern Range, and then decided, no, I like it out there, and then she headed back out and settled in the Madison Valley, just south of Venice. So that's kind of a longer range movement. Um, we've had some males go really far. And of course, you hear of stories of these really long range dispersals. Um, the famous one, I think it was back in 2011 of a male that went from the Dakotas um, all the way to Connecticut and was hit by a vehicle uh, oh my gosh. on a road in Connecticut. And I think that's among one of the, the longest dispersal distances of a terrestrial mammal. Um, so it, it's pretty varied there. But, um, but yeah, that kind of describes the basic uh, sort of family structure. So back to what I was saying about um, being solitary or not. You know, so you think of a female cougar, she's she's rarely solitary. She's pretty much with offspring most of her life. Because once they produce a litter of kittens and they leave mom, she usually then cranks out another litter of kittens if she's a good mom and has good resources. So they are often living in little little groups of, of cats, you know, little packs of cats. Um, and, uh, and then we also document, uh, you know, cougars coming together and sharing kills, uh, males and females associating with one another, um, spending time together, of course, for breeding. Uh, other, And we see this with our GPS caller data. We see this with our remote camera data of, of multiple cats coming together. Um, I think they're a little more social than people realize, uh, always searching their environment for new information from who's out there. Are they a friend? Are they a foe? Are they a relative or not? Are they a potential mate? Uh, are they a potential competitor? Um, their their social relationships, I think, are richer than we uh, maybe have previously appreciated.
1: Yeah, um, I think we're going to talk a little bit later about the Yellowstone Cougar Project in more depth, but how many collared cats do you guys have?
0: Right now, we just have four collared individuals. Okay. Um, with four GPS collared individuals. Um, we lost several last year to uh, a range. We lost a uh, one to uh, was killed by a pack of wolves. Um, one drowned in the river, actually, and another oh, wow. one left the park and was harvested. Um, for, uh, was killed uh, and during a hunt. Um and uh, so natural causes of death. Uh, we actually had an accidental death. I just remembered of another one that actually got stuck in a rock pile. We think she was trying to reach down and get a marmot or something, and her leg got caught and it broke. And she was in a boulder fell on her and it pinned her there. So I mean, they they really face a lot of challenges yeah. out there in their daily lives. It's a it's a hard a hard living. Um. So right now we only have four, but we can talk a little bit about this later if you'd like, but just the history of the Yellowstone Cougar project through time has shifted from intensive radio collaring and has to do with technology and methods for counting cougars, which is a big part of our objective to newer technologies and techniques such as non-invasive genetic surveys, remote cameras. And and we've we've decided purposefully to kind of back off the heavy, more heavy handed radio collaring that earlier cougar studies have uh, really needed to do in order to get the information they were seeking. And, And now we can really take advantage of different technologies we still rely on GPS collars to answer certain questions are invaluable to that. Um, but we try to balance it with, um, you know, collaring animals, which is a ton of work. There's all those safety issues for people and animals and, um, and plus we work in a national park. So we try to, you know, limit our sort of uh, direct handling of animals and collaring that said research objectives sometimes really call for that sort of technology application.
1: For sure. But it must be nice to have even more tools in your p- toolbox now. It really
0: does. It really mm-hmm. does. Yep.
1: For sure. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about the role that cougars play in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem and, you know, perhaps even what this place would look like without them.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the there's been so much attention over the last couple of decades to wolves, and, and rightly so. Um, you know, they, uh, they really, uh, it was a big deal to bring them back to these landscapes. Um, but we forget that there was this other top predator there on the landscape as well. Um, You know, cougars and wolves share a very similar history in Yellowstone. Uh, They were both eradicated you know, in terms of a viable population by the 1930s, um, cougars crept back in on their own. And uh, and that happened probably sometimes during the 70s. And there's a couple of reasons we can talk about um, about what, what drove that change. Um, but, you know, their importance in these landscapes are, they are a top predator. And we know that predation is an incredibly important ecological force. It's shaped life on earth for millions of years. And, and the role of top predators Uh, on ecosystems like Yellowstone Yellowstone can't be underappreciated through their process of killing prey. um, They really play a key role in how ecosystems function primarily through food web dynamics, the transition of energy, uh, from a predator when it kills that large ungulate, like an elk, for example, that energy that then ripples through that food web has very many links. And we know from studying food web history and ecology, the more links you have in a food web, um, and there are many in Yellowstone, uh, the the more stable those ecosystems can be. I mean, we use the word you know balanced and healthy. Balance is sort of I think you know it's sort of a, a term of the past when we talk about ecology. That you know there really isn't the balance of so-called balance of nature as much is you know these ecosystems are dynamic they change uh, but food web dynamics underlie them and and the more links you have the more stable and sure healthy we can use that term they are so cougars are that direct predation link that really um, influenced that food web dynamic by transitioning energy throughout it. So the energy goes through not only themselves and their offspring, but to all the scavenger guild: the ravens, the the eagles, the magpies, the the grizzly bears or the black bears that might get the food from a cougar kill. Um, And then through their nutrient cycling all the way down into the soil microbes and the invertebrate communities. um, And that all trickles back into the landscape through um, plant growth and nutrients. So it really shapes and influences a lot of things through that top-down influence we, we talk about top-down predation uh, influences on food beds and bottom up you know right through primary productivity of plants feeding herbivores so predators are very much at that and so the cougar does play that significant role here uh, in Yellowstone.
1: Okay wonderful so you you mentioned that they were extirpated from Yellowstone but managed to kind of reintroduce themselves to the park so can you tell us a little bit yeah. about that?
0: Yeah. So um, there's this really fun history of the cougar in Yellowstone that links to, um, you know, someone that we all are familiar with and his link to conservation. That's Teddy Roosevelt. He actually came to Yellowstone in the early 1900s with the goal of uh, hunting a cougar in the park. Um, you know, this is at a time. This was around the early 1900s, and uh, he recognized that that would probably be controversial. He came to Yellowstone and actually saw that was at a time when um, you know the predators had largely been eliminated, particularly wolves, uh, and so he was seeing uh, large amounts, abundance of elk that were uh, came during some particularly tough winters that were starving, and then he sort of recalibrated his view on cougars. He initially thought of the cougar as being this. Um, lacking courage and, uh, you know, bloodthirsty. And um, and then, you know, once he got to learn about these animals a little bit more, you know, through hunting them outside of the park and other places and appreciating them more, um, he kind of changed his tone and he actually asked for the banning of wolf, uh, of cougar eradication in Yellowstone in 1908. Now that didn't quite get followed because predator eradication continued after he established that. Uh, but it is an interesting story about his connection to Yellowstone and cougar specifically. Specifically, um, but yes, like wolves, they were more or less eradicated by the 30s. There was bounties on them. There was actually a park directive to remove predators from public lands and right. uh, Yellowstone and the surrounding areas. And they were quite successful with cougars in particular. Hounds, in, in, to this day, are a very effective way to kill cougars. Poisons were applied for sure, and that affected many species. You know, wolves, coyotes, bears, uh, the scavengers, uh, cougars to a certain degree as well. But um, certainly the bounties and the direct did hunting using hounds was a key part of that removal for cougars and remember cougars have evolved with wolves and 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 the response when you're chased by a canid for if you're a cat is to go up a tree Uh, and that's become an effective way um, to to hunt uh cougars we use that same technique to to radio collar them actually so um but that was quite successful now Through the late 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, there was probably some cougars roaming around a little bit. I mean, really throughout the West, cougars took a big toll because of the bounties. Um, But, you know, they live in very remote wild places and they probably all were not killed. Uh, But we believe that Yellowstone just... Just simply did not have a functional cougar population. When I say functional, ecologically functional, they weren't playing. There weren't enough of them to play a role as a predator that we see today, um, for for that period between the 30s uh, and through the 60s. Sometimes in the early 70s is when we think they started coming back, and the reason for that is that was around the time that the states in the west and other parts of the country got rid of the bounties on cougars they recognized there was a there was actually a group of, of uh, constituents and these are houndsmen that wanted to see cougars out there they wanted to chase them they were they were, didn't have them out there anymore and so they advocated to have them become a trophy game managed animal And simultaneous to that, we were seeing deer and elk populations coming back because of management as well. Um, And so it became this sort of combination of actually controlling the take of cougars through hunting and regulation that helped bring them back. Um, To this day, the houndsman communities are probably some of the biggest advocates for cougar conservation. That's, I think, important for people to to understand as they play a pretty key role in the conservation of cougars to this day. But they crept back into uh, the Yellowstone probably in the 70s, and we believe um, established a population um, by the 1980s in terms of a resident year round population.
1: Okay, so let's revisit the Yellowstone Cougar Project. So you've mentioned mm-hmm. it a few times throughout, but can you give us a little bit more of a backstory and then just describe really what that entails? I know you're project leader, so I assume you have all the information. <laughs>
0: Sure, sure. So the Elson Cougar Project, I would say, officially started um, back in the 80s. There was an initial survey here, 1982, somewhere in that era, um, that uh, was kind of the first attempt to document an, an established population. It was largely through snow tracking surveys. There was no collaring, radio collaring or anything. It was just, do we have cougars here? And then in 1987, at the time, a young uh, biologist named Kerry Murphy, he went on to have a really long career here, Uh, both starting in Yellowstone and moving down to the Forest Service, down uh, into Wyoming. Um, And he, for his doctoral degree, uh, was sort of the first real focused study on on cougars, and that kind of started the Yellowstone Cougar Project. And between 1987 and 1994 is what we would think of as sort of phase one of Yellowstone Cougar Project, and that was prior to wolf reintroduction. The goals there were uh, uh, very similar to what we do today in this, uh, how many cougars are in the park, uh, what's their distribution and uh, what are their predation patterns and their food habits and uh, and and with that came a very uh, involved radio coloring. that at the time the technology available to study. Cougars was really being driven by radio telemetry. Um, they did not have GPS collars at the time. It was simple uh, simply a collar that uh, emitted a beacon. That one had to go out first. You had to catch a cougar, <laughs> and then you put the collar on, and then you follow it. So, um, and I can talk about catching cougars and the challenges there. But they caught a lot of cougars during that area. They worked with uh, some local houndsmen, dedicated dogs that are well trained to uh, pursue cougar track or find cougar tracks. Um, of course, the, the human finds helps find the track. And then the, the dogs, of course, using their amazing sense of smell will, will track that cat. Um, and the goal of treating the cat in which the biologists can then dart the cat with immobilization drugs and, and climb up and lower them to the ground and fit them with a radio collar and let them go. And that was the primary goal. And they tried to collar as many cougars as they could find to really Figure out how many were out there. I mean, think about how many times you've seen a cougar, Kristen, um, (laughs) in the wild. And and so then think about how difficult it would be to actually count cougars on the landscape and estimate their population size. So that really was the best tool at the time to do it. And to this day, it really is an effective tool as well. We have new tools that I'll talk about. And so Kerry Murphy's work, he collared a lot of cougars between 1987 and 1994. And he basically came in and was able to document that increasing recolonization of Yellowstone National Park uh, by that species. And then from his studies on their predation patterns, what they would do is you follow a cougar, you locate them every day, you take a bearing, you mark a location and you hang a little flag and you leave and you come back the next day. And if the cougar left, you go and find that cougar the next day and do the same thing. If the cougar didn't leave and it's in the same spot for a couple days in a row, you triangulate that based on your bearings of the signal And then once that animal leaves, you go in and hopefully find food prey remains. And that was the main way that they could document what they were feeding on. And they use all that radio calling data to estimate the population size. And that was at a time when, you know, we're talking about in the teens uh, to low 20s during that era of cougars, because they were just establishing themselves. And and I I first should explain what Yellowstone's cougar habitat is like the year round uh, um, resident population of yellowstone cougars is in the northern part of the park what we call the northern range northern range of course is characterized by that winter range of the migratory ungulates the elk the bison the deer pronghorn bighorn sheep um, all come here to the northern part from other parts of the park in the summer it's the best year-round habitat the northern range has been the focus it's characterized of course by open grasslands and sagebrush communities mixed with forest Um, cougars in particular are known to be in those really steep rugged habitats. The Yellowstone River, uh, that of course comes up to the Northern Range, um, uh, leaves Canyon Village in the interior and, and shoots north and makes that hard bend uh, where it meets with Lamar Valley and then cuts here into the town of Gardner and then moves on north that is the heart and soul of cougar country in Yellowstone. We call it the Black Canyon of the Yellowstone. If you've ever hiked between, um, you know, anywhere between Hellroaring and Gardner, um, you are hiking through the best, some of the best cougar habitat in maybe the lower 48, so, uh, or anywhere. Um, and so it's, it's just, uh, that is kind of our main area. So that's where our researchers focus. So Kerry did his work. That ended in 1994. Then... In 1998 through 2006, Tony Ruth led the study, again, Hornocker Wildlife Institute slash Wildlife Conservation Society and uh, She led that effort. We refer to that as phase two. And that was a, a wonderful, elegant study because it, you know, it was able to compare and contrast pre-wolf and post-wolf. What are the effects of when you restore the other top predator to the landscape? So how did they compete? Did they coexist? Did wolf recovery cause cougars to decline? Did it change their food habits? Um, and then Tony, again, because the technology is available to her, continued with that heavy Radio collaring effort. They tried to collar, you know, up to eighty percent at any time of the population. Um, snow tracking surveys, uh, collaring that really allowed them to come up with good population estimates between those two phases. And that study ended in two thousand six. Towards the tail end of her study, new technologies like uh, GPS collars were starting to become available. When I first worked on that study in 2001, we were still doing that old school predation sequences where you'd go out every day and locate the cougar. You wouldn't try to see them. I mean, the whole goal was not to disturb them and bump them from the kills, but you're trying to get really accurate locations and triangulate and come back the next day and search. And that was the way we studied their food habits. Now we just use GPS collars, which are, uh, are just fantastic. Um, and, uh, so that work ended and, you know, her work was, was great because it essentially showed us that the cougar population was continuing to increase. Um, and that's because it was just abundant food. I mean, we still had the Northern elk herd at this time was abundant and rich. And yes, sure. It was on the decline. I'll talk about, it's important to talk about what caused that decline and where we're at today. Um, but basically, there's still enough food and enough space for wolves and cougars to coexist, and we actually she continued to see an increase in, in cougar population size from her work. So her study ended in 2006, and then there was about an eight-year gap in anything doing having to do with cougars. You know, we, the Wolf Project, would continue to kind of track and opportunistically get info, but rarely did we see cougars. We weren't looking for them. We'd cut their tracks. We'd uh, occasionally have a sighting, uh, but there was no focus research anymore. Uh, in 2014 um, is when I started back up what I guess you could think of as phase three of the Elson Cougar Project. And we just decided it was time to really understand how the community ecology of carnivores, a multi-carnivore system. Uh, you know, Tony had done a great job carrying off what Kerry Murphy did. Um, but since no one else was doing it, we you know, we have to keep this work going. And it's important because at the time there was so much focus on wolves and wolves are doing this. Wolves are, you know, trophic cascades and they're causing the elk herd to decline. You know, we really needed to reach out to the public and educate and say, no, this is a multi-carnivore system. There's a lot of factors that are influencing um, ungulate population dynamics, competition and coexistence. and, And we can't just not ignore cougars. And I think too often they were being ignored in terms of their role in this system. So we started the study back up in 2014. This was at a time now when molecular techniques, such as uh, uh, being able to genotype a hair sample or a scat, were becoming more commonly used for these secretive sorts of carnivores. You know, There's these efforts with wolverines and other uh, secretive animals where sort of these non-invasive snow tracking surveys, finding hair or scat or blood left behind, and being able to send those to a lab and genotyping them to come up with unique genotypes, which is a signature of an individual from their genetic code, their DNA, um, we're becoming more readily available, readily to use. So we really embraced that. We came up with an estimate in that 2014 to 2017 of approximately uh, 34 to 42 cougars, depending on the year. And that's all age and sex classes. And that doesn't sound like many, But, you know, given their home range size, um, it's a robust, healthy population that comes up to a density. It's very common for cougar studies to use a similar density. And that's like about two cougars per um, uh, per 100 square kilometer. Um, And so that's about, you know, two cougars per just under 40 square kilometers. And that's a pretty consistent density from where Tony Ruth was at. It's very similar to densities we see in other cougar studies that are being done in the Rocky Mountain West. So it indicates a healthy, stable cougar population. Um, and so that's kind of how we've done that. And now we're using remote cameras. Uh, and that's uh, like with genetic samples left behind, we can put a handful of collars out on in individuals, uh, the GPS collars, and we put little markings on their collars so they show up either at night, infrared on the infrared cameras. They have a little glow. You don't the animal doesn't see it, but we see it on the camera. Um, and so we can identify individuals that hit our cameras. And so that with that. Then becomes is like a genetic sample you collect a hair from a specific you know location on the landscape. you could say individual a was here and we found and detected individual a x number of times and you can extrapolate out their home range size and that gives you this um, estimate of how many cougars are uh distributed over you know a certain unit of, of area the cameras do the same thing we can recognize individuals from their collars and that feeds into these same modeling techniques we call them spatially explicit mark capture methods or there's different variations of that and and those become really uh become pretty robust ways to estimate uh population abundance so, so now we're taking advantage of remote cameras um along with our GPS collars. And our GPS collars are used for predation studies. Uh, We use the GPS movements to look at their interactions with wolves and bears and how they overlap together. Um, We look at how elk uh, are responding to predation risk by cougars by comparing our GPS collared elk with our GPS collared cougars and wolves. So we're doing all this really wonderful stuff using these cutting edge technologies. But the remote cameras are wonderful because we get high-definition video clips that really can show us the world of cougars that are just so difficult for people to see in the wild. And I can sit here and talk about the science of cougars forever. (laughs) And, yeah, I could show you a 20-second clip of a cougar and you'll just be inspired and mesmerized by them on camera. So that's kind of our combination of of techniques we're using today.
1: Amazing. Amazing. Okay, so I have a couple follow-up questions for you on that. Um, First, do you think that cougars being a particularly elusive animal played a role in them being overlooked for a while? Or do you think there's another reason for that?
0: Oh, you're completely right. Uh, spot on. Is it yeah. out of sight? Out of sight, out of mind. Sight, no, mind. They, yeah. mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, you know, they don't howl, they don't roam around in big packs. They, you know, they're just not as obvious. And so we tend to, you know, are just how humans are a little more prone to like value things or have, uh, views or opinions about things are shaped by how often you're exposed to them, right? And and I think with cougars, you know, it just sort of, uh, you know, there's not the same mythology um, with them, even just through human culture. I think like there is with wolves or bears, even um, there's not the same animosity or hatred. Um, and I think a lot of that is influenced in part by the fact that people just never see them um, or rarely see them. Um, and so that certainly is the case for Yellowstone. So we're trying to really promote them as an important animal here in the park through both our research and, our, and, and, the, and the data and the information we learn about them. But just, again, I love giving talks to the public and sharing just video footage of them because, you know, it's like you just never see cougars out there. You're lucky if you get one glimpse in your lifetime. And, yeah, and, absolutely. Uh,
1: Well, it's just, I'm so struck by the tremendous amount of work uh, and effort it takes to do, you know, to do this work and collect all this incredible data. I mean, if I had managed to successfully uh, capture and collar any cougar that I'd seen in the park, that number would still be zero. (laughs) So (laughs) it's really remarkable to me. Um, What, if anything, has surprised you the most in your time studying and living with cougars?
0: Yeah, I think. Um, I think what that one thing is really important for people to understand about these carnivores, cougars, uh, wolves, um, is just how challenging in their lives are, how difficult it is for them to do the basic things that they need to survive, hunting primarily. Um, you know, we've really try to uh, uh, share what we've learned about hunting behavior in these animals and their success and their impacts on prey in a way that is, um, we hope is useful for appreciating them more, learning to coexist with them understanding whether or not they're having impacts on prey populations. And, and just for a cougar, just it's just, they're so tough. And their challenges of, of, of raising offspring and feeding themselves are um, quite impressive to see. And just, uh, you know, cougar as a hunter is a uh, stalking ambush hunter. They have, again, as I described at the beginning of our conversation, um, very powerful muscular uh, body design, and that's key to their hunting success. Their method of hunting is to stalk and come up behind prey or up alongside prey and reach around and grab onto them. And they're usually trying to deliver a bite with their mouth on the neck, uh, either the throat or the top of the head. Um, They're doing it by themselves. They don't have help of other cougars Unlike wolves. They do have what we call supinating, like us, supinating wrists. They can rotate. They have retractable claws that come out. That is a real advantage over the wolf that literally just has its mouth um, but the cougars can come up and grab and so they're very powerful and strong we actually think they are probably more successful per encounter than a wolf mm-hmm. um our research on wolves here and we watched wolves hunt elk you know thousands of times over the last 26 years is they're only successful taking down a cow elk like maybe 15, 20% of the time they attempt it. Very inefficient at what they do. Um, they It's been grossly misrepresented, sort of the hunting skill of a wolf. Um, you know, they're very much limited by their biology. They need vulnerable prey to be successful. Um, and they can't kill anything they want. It's not easy. They don't kill for fun same thing with cougars although i think cougars are slightly better than wolves at doing it because of their hunting style and their muscular strength and their ability to rotate and grab on that said it's still very dangerous and difficult we've had cougars that we've been studying and following die from hunts i remember this really prominent uh, example back when i was working for tony in the early 2000s of a male cougar we were following and doing predation work on out by lamar valley on mount norris he came up and had attacked a bighorn ram this full curl at the top of a the cliff they both tumbled off the cliff fell over 100 feet the sheep hit the ground and literally popped when we came up on the scene it's like heart was laying on the snow <laughs> blood everywhere we're like what the heck's going on here then we found the cougar with a broken back and compound fractures on his hind legs and you know he died from that uh, hunting event again just trying to get a meal um, i handled a cool, collared a cougar a couple years ago m211 we called him snaggletooth because he had a broken and healed lower jaw, a missing upper canine, you know, their canines are their most you yeah. know, important tool for hunting and it was totally missing. And we think he'd gotten kicked in the face during an elk hunt. He went on to live another four or five years. Um, he had a female cougar that broke her hind, her hip, and we have her on camera multiple times with this broken hip. And yet she still had her two kittens. She was hauling along with her. She was hunting and feeding them. She's gone on to heal from that broken hip. She's alive out there today. She, she's probably wow. in my view shed over here on Mount Everett. <laughs> so look out the window, um, doing her thing with her kittens and she's fully healed. And that's a couple of years ago this happened and they're just tough. They're yeah. persevering through all those challenges. Um, and I, I shouldn't say that's a surprise as much as just a deeper appreciation for these animals. Yeah. And what they go right. through, yeah,
1: that is remarkable. And um, uh, some of those stories are a little hard to hear, to be honest. Yes, but actually, yes! I do yes. remember when that incident with the cougar and the bighorn sheep happened because uh, yeah. the photos of the aftermath of that were pretty widely circulated on the internet. That's right. It was yeah. startling to see yes, this, yes, this horrible demise of both animals <laughs> at the end of a of what must have been a pretty wild you know hunt, but um, pretty crazy. Okay, so curious about um. Memorable experiences. So, you have been in Yellowstone for many years now, presumably seen lots of things. Any really particularly memorable moments with cougars that you can share?
0: Yeah, I remember um, when I first started working on the cougar project, my first day in the field was probably the f- most physically challenging day I've ever <laughs> had. Um, you know, anyone that's studied cougars, anyone that's Gone out with a houndsman, maybe in in an area that not along a road to to try to tree a cougar, um, not even to kill one, but just to see one up a tree. Anyone that's um, hiked in cougar country knows just one how challenging that country is physically. But I remember my first day on the cougar project. It was in May of two thousand. Um, I went out <coughs> with uh, uh, a long term uh, field biologist, Polly Biot, and we went from Gardner all the way up and over. Uh, Deckard Flats, through Crevice Creek up the other side. And the goal that day was to locate a cougar. And so we had to go find it. We heard the signals and, we, and it took us all day to get there. And finally at 3.30 in the afternoon, we got up to where we thought it was and we kind of snuck up and the signal was booming, clicking really loud. In. And I look over and I see this male radio caller cougar just like basking in the sun under a tree in the late afternoon and and uh so we got the location and and then i turned around and hiked all the way back and got back after dark and it was just too too exhausted to eat and but it was sort of that first real exposure to cougar research And I just fell in love. I mean, I had already been studying wolves for a few years at that time. And I love studying wolves. And and it's fun to do both and see their similarities and differences. But I just, that first real experience out there as a biologist tracking a cougar was just, um, I'll never forget it. I went on to just continue to have those sorts of experiences. And, you know, whether it be, I remember watching this uh, mother cougar um, out one afternoon, we got a location on her. We were watching her from maybe, I don't know five 600 yards away and you know, we're watching through binoculars we'd hiked a couple hours to get to where she was and it's great when you see them on those days because then you don't have to like you know exactly where she was and what she was doing but what she was doing is she was you know, she had two little kittens so oh, maybe about 20 25 pounds and they were following along and kind of falling off logs and scrambling up and she kept turning around and chirping at them you know they have oh, yeah. that's the one thing about cougar calls that people might not appreciate is that we kind of think of cougar vocalizations as sort of, you know, the, the movie sort of the caterwaul or the scream, like, whew, and, you know, they do do that. Um, and females caterwaul to, to attract mates. And, and so that does happen, but so much of their communication, particularly with their kittens is chirping like birds, you know, you, you probably heard a cougar vocalize out there. If you spent a lot of time in, in Yellowstone country and didn't realize what it was, or maybe was you do. If thought it was a bird. <laughs> um, but the bird they chirp. Yeah. Out,
1: like, oh, I can't find this one. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's like a chipping sparrow. Like, jip, jip. Yep. <laughs> um, and she was chirping at her kittens that basically say you know stay there I'm hunting and what she was trying to do is hunt marmots um, and so she had their kittens, and she kept chirping on. They'd follow her, and she could go up to them and try to lead them back. And it was almost like she was scolding them, like you're screwing up my hunt. And you know, <laughs> she's kind of sent them back. And they finally did what you know young cougars do: is they kind of tucked themselves under a log and they totally evaporated. And then she continued to hunt, and I watched her two or three times fail to get marmots, who were, of course they were chirping too, giving their alarm mm-hmm. calls. So um, mm-hmm. that was just a real special situation. It wasn't the dramatic like a cougar coming up and grabbing an elk and taking it down. It was like a female trying to feed her young kittens, taking advantage of whatever food resources there. And marmots are a nice, fat little package of food to, to get. And they they are successful getting them from time to time. And, and so that was really special. Um, gosh, I mean, there's just so many. Um, you know, when we do our captures, um, those are pretty intense experiences. You know, we're out there. We're really focus on animal safety, whether it's the dogs that we work with, the people because of just the um, intensity of of trying to get close to cougars and get them up trees and safely dart them and lower them. But I've had a lot of close encounters with cougars in those situations. And I think what resonates with me is just the the visual connection you make with an animal in that situation where they're up in a tree and and it's really amazing about cougars and this has to be just an evolved response is they act really calm. They kind of go in this zen state when they're up in a tree. You know, people think of it as probably a stressful situation. And there's no doubt there's stress involved. And the animals, who knows internally what's going on? But they sit there, oftentimes they take a nap while you're messing around with your darts and getting ready to do. It, and they just sit there and then they look up at you. Um but when you make that eye connection with a cougar at close range like that, it, it's just they stare right through you, um, you know. And, and as a biologist, you look at them and you say thank you, you say sorry. And it's sort of yeah. a contract you have with them that they yeah. don't totally appreciate, and you just have to be. This is something that we hope will help your species in the long term. You're going to teach us a lot. We're going to put a collar on you. Um, the collars we use now, we do we can blow them off remotely once they've collected enough really? data. So we um, sometimes we capture them because we do long term study in. Individuals, but just uh, a month ago, I went out and triggered a blow off on a female that um, we had collared for a couple of years. The collar collected two years of great data, served its purpose. We went out and triggered the blow off, and it fell off the cat on the ground, and uh, she went off into the woods without a collar. And, 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 and those are really special moments when you, as a biologist, have learned something from an animal. And again, you hope it feeds into the bigger picture of, of teaching others about this animal and why they're important. And then you say so long and good luck. Um, Thank you for your service. uh, But those (laughs) moments are special for me and um, not many people get them. And I'm I'm very lucky to have had those through time.
1: Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing those stories with us. Um, So possibly the most important question of the day Uh, because we want your official scientific opinion on this. What do you think is the cutest? uh, Cougar kittens, grizzly bear cubs, or wolf pups?
0: Oh, hands down, cougar kittens.
1: Okay, good. Right answer. That's what I was going to say. Hands down. (laughs) I mean, they've got those.
0: (laughs) They're just, you know, the spots, the blue eyes, that just little fuzzy face, the whole thing. And you know, our work, earlier work that was done here in Yellowstone did a fair bit because this was a big part of the question of, of marking kittens. So they you figure out where the female had their den, you'd go in, you'd wait for her to leave, you'd go in and... and, and handle these little kittens and you put little expandable radio collars on them and get blood samples for genetics and disease. And, and, uh, and, and so that was pretty cool to see little kittens up close. We don't do that with our work. Now we kind of leave kittens alone. It's not really a question for our research. In the first couple of years I started the study, we were doing it a little bit and, uh, oh yeah, I'll just never forget their smell, their look, their, uh, their fuzziness. Yeah, there's I mean, wolf bear cubs and wolf cubs are cute too, but um, yeah, I think hand, hands down, the cougars got it. So
1: it, it'd just be so hard, I imagine, to stay really, you know, objective in that moment. You just want to like give them just a little cuddle, real quick. Yes. Well, nobody's yes. looking. <laughs> yes. You do um, it. No one knows. Yeah. yeah exactly. No, for no knows <laughs> that's for science. Just <laughs> science. Um, One other question that we do like to ask all of our guests, and you you did mention a few specific names throughout our conversation, but do you have any particular sort of science or conservation hero, perhaps, who inspired you, you know, in your younger years or just really anybody that you look up to?
0: I've been really lucky because, you know, of course, when I was a young kid and I was studying wolves, like everyone knows Dave Meech is sort of the, you know, one of the main wolf researchers or Wolf Peterson. And and those two people, you know, I've gone to know and become friends with and have worked with or for them in different years. So, um, you know, I work closely with Doug Smith. He's a good friend. And, and he kind of was ushered me along when I first showed up here. Um, you know, they're all great mentors. They've all been important people uh, with my experience with wolves. Um, Baron Heinrich, uh, you know, I read his books, um, like crazy when I was young, he wrote Ravens in Winter, he wrote Bumblebee Economics, he wrote all these fantastic natural history books. Um, he was sort of, uh, you know, sort of this early hero of me kind of carrying on in the, in the realm of, you know, the, the kind of the prominent behavioral ecologist back in the day. And, and um, I got to work with him and, you know, I have kind of been lucky in my career that I've had people, I read their work and was really intrigued and it got me into the field and went on to, to meet them and know them and become friends with them. That's been really special uh, for me. I mentioned yeah. Tony Ruth. Um, she was a great mentor with the Cougar work and I still stay in touch with Tony today and bounce ideas off with her. Or Carrie Murphy sort of my predecessors with the Cougar project So, you know, those are definitely real people. I mean, I think, you know, my current conservation heroes are, are, you know, are probably ones that we don't know about yet. And it's the ones that hopefully will be brave enough to step up and might have different views about some of the animals I work with, but are willing to kind of think out of their box and open their minds and and stand up for them. And I think because the solutions for us moving forward with I mean, if you can see what's happening in the state of Montana right now with wolf management, if you look at just the threats that these animals face, you know, we need people across the aisle that maybe come from a different value or perspective of these animals or what their worth is. I think, to step up now. I mean, I think we've done a lot of work for conservation and we need to understand where they're coming from, but we also need those folks to come to the table too moving right. forward. So I think we've got some heroes out there that just haven't revealed themselves and I'm yeah. hoping that that happens. So, yeah. Um, but yeah. So
1: Certainly, certainly. Yeah. I mean, you know, we are so fortunate to live and work in, in a remarkable ecosystem. And I think our, our very iconic wildlife are no small part of what makes this place so special. So we certainly need to uh, be lending them our voice as much as we can. We do have some listener questions for you. Sure. And it may come as no surprise that the majority of these are folks who are curious about sort of the human interactions with mountain lions. Yes. Uh, So we'll just roll through these and get your, your thoughts on these. Absolutely. Okay. So first up, Grace from California wants to know, how vulnerable is a solo hiker in mountain lion country if they hike during daylight hours
0: grace not vulnerable enough to not be out there hiking um you again the 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 chance that you would have an encounter with a cougar first of all just an encounter with one and second one that would be negative or risky or dangerous is extremely rare Extremely rare. They're just—it's just not likely to happen. Cougars, just by their natural behavior, avoid interacting with humans at all costs. In most situations, um, you know, so it, it's just nothing you'd have to worry about. I mean, I think like anything else, when you're out there hiking, you want to be aware of your surroundings. Um, you know, it's, you know, you don't want to be hiking with listening to music. You know, obviously if you're by yourself, um, it's nice to make noise. If you are hiking in a landscape where there are carnivores like wolves or bears or cougars, um, you know, making yourself known, being aware, having bear spray, bear spray is a great tool for cougars as well. You know, one of the things that we learn with bear encounters is, um, particularly grizzly bears is, is. You know, under a chance encounter, having bear spray, but should you be attacked, playing dead is really key. Cougars is very different. If a cougar locks mm-hmm. onto you and, and were to see you and come at you, um, you know, if you had bear spray, certainly use it. If you didn't have bear spray, make yourself bigger, lift your jacket up, pick up rocks and sticks and yell. I mean, there's some interesting footage that's come out on the internet in the last couple of years of, I think there was a jogger in Colorado last year that had some footage of this cougar tracking it and following it. And it it wouldn't, leave, it wouldn't leave him. And as it turned out, she had kittens nearby. So she was being protective. Eventually he threw a rock or a stick and she wheeled around and ran off. But certainly that was a scary encounter for him, I, I imagine. Um, but yes, you would want to fight. You'd want to throw sticks. But again, you know, these animals, wolves, cougars, they, they evolved to be risk averse. And, and to the degree that you can be the aggressor and turn the tables on them just through your mm-hmm. behavior, your voice, making eye contact with them, um, that, that would be important. So those would be Uh, tricks and techniques as a solo hiker out there, um, just being aware of your surroundings. So, um, but I wouldn't let it uh, dominate your thinking about there and and certainly ruin your um, experience of being in nature.
1: Perfect. So be aware, if not paranoid, and then Mm -hmm. if you are going to have a negative encounter, make yourself seem not worth the effort.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Yes. Perfect.
1: Thanks for that. Okay, Dan, Jeff from Montana wants to know, and actually this is a two-part question. First, do cougars purr? And second, do you dream about cougars?
0: Cougars do purr, um, like other uh, cat mem- uh, members of the fela day, and they sound just like your house cat. Uh, we've uh, heard purring on our cameras. Uh, cougars will often come up to our cameras um, if they see them uh, and come up and sniff them, um, and you will hear that. I had we had video footage of a female just happened to plop down in front of a camera and four kittens of hers came up and rolled around in the snow and Mm. you could hear some purring going on. It's their way of communicating uh, with their young uh, in those situations. Uh, It's a sign of comfort and and connection uh, and bonding. So yes, they do purr. Um, Do I dream of cougars? Yes, I do dream (laughs) of cougars. Um, And to be honest, most of the dreams happen either the night before I capture one or the night after I capture one and I'm thinking about its well-being and hoping mm. everything is fine <laughs> and yeah. uh or 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 some like event of the day. So I do have dreams of cougars from time to time and uh yeah. they're usually pretty cool.
1: So awesome. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Great questions.
1: And sort of in a similar alignment with that question about purring, Sarah from Idaho wants to know how are cougars similar perhaps behaviorally to house cats?
0: Oh, so similar. Great question. Um, You know, we always talk about, you know, there's a challenge (laughs) in our country with people wanting to have um, wild animals as pets, you know, wolf dog hybrids are uh, the primary example. Um, that comes to mind. That said, there are states out there that, you know, I forget what the statistics are, but many states, uh, st- some, well, not about many, some states still allow you to actually have uh, cougars as pets, captive raised pets. Um, I would not recommend it. If We always say if you want to have one of these wild animals in your home, get a dog, get a cat. They're so similar. Cats, to talk about them specifically, here's a great example of that. Purring. Um, The long tail, the sort of ninja-like acrobatics that they do, cougars do that on a larger scale. Um, It's amazing to see how athletic cougars are um, if they bail out of a tree after they've that don't like the situation being there. When we do our catch work, sometimes they don't stay there put for us to dart them. They, they launch out of the tree, fly through the air like a flying squirrel, hit the ground without even skipping a beat and keep running. It's just amazing how athletic they are. If you see them or track them in the snow, you can see what they're doing as they cross logs and rocks. Very similar to just watching your house cat bop around the house. Um, mm-hmm. And Again, that long tail, that, sort of that counterbalance and their agility, um, uh, they do that. We've had uh, videos of cougars walking through snow or getting their Feet wet and they go like this and shake them. Oh shake their shake. paws. Like have you <laughs> seen that with your house cat? They do that. Yep. Um, when exactly. cats, your house cat uses a litter box, it goes in, it digs a little with its hind feet, it scrapes in either peas or poops. Uh, exact behavior of a cougar. They do the exact same thing. They go and they scrape with their hind feet. It's actually a really important social communication where males in particular will do what's called scraping. They go up to under like a in soft pine needles or dirt underneath a big tree often, a canopy of a tree. They sit down and they use their hind feet and scrape a little depression in the ground. Look for it when you're out hiking in cougar country. Once you figure out what a cougar scrape looks like, you'll see them everywhere. Um, and they do that and they urinate that, sometimes defecate in it, and that is a visual and olfactory sort of signal. Uh, I'm here, this is who I am. Females do the same thing when they're in estrus. They'll, they'll scrape and urinate and then Catterwall to draw in a mate. So if you've heard your house cats, you know, at night caterwauling with the neighborhood cat or fighting, that's what you would expect, uh, uh, or finding a mate, um, that's what uh, cougars do as well. Um, So there's a lot of those similar behaviors there. When they eat something, if you, you know, we all know that there's a big conservation concern with house cats out of doors, killing birds and animals, that's a real problem for sure. Um, But if you've observed that with mice, um, let's maybe, hopefully they're doing it inside your house, um, (laughs) um, you'll, when they chew on the. They, they chew using their carnassials you know off to their side we actually have this really great study going on i just want to mention it because it's pretty cool where we put these accelerometer gps collars on our cougars and they operate like fitbits where they're continuously recording the body position of a cougar on three dimensions and it records that data into the collar and then we can pull all that data off and when you look at it you actually see when they turn their head and rotate, you see the axes switch in the signature of the data. And that means they're feeding on something because they turn to the side. Oh, wow. And so we can actually estimate feeding rates from that accelerometer data. I say that only because it links to that behavior when you watch your house cat mm-hmm. kind of linking to the yeah. side and kind of chewing with their carnassials on a mouse um, or even their cat food. So there's a lot of similarities and similarities there for sure. Too
1: funny. So, yeah. Right on cue yeah oh
0: there you go you've got a Seamus cougar yeah
1: just walked uh, up strictly indoor only no bird killing for this yes, guy but he like heard are. us talking about cats and <laughs> came to say hello um, so yeah watch
0: your house cat you'll see yeah. very <laughs> similar behaviors that you would see uh on a cougar in the wild so
1: amazing very cool Uh, London from Montana wants to know, what are the signs that a cougar is in the area? And you just mentioned the scrapes for us, which Mm -hmm. is very cool. What else can we be on the lookout for?
0: I mean, the best thing, I mean, our tool, I mean, what we do every time we're out there looking for cougars is, of course, looking for their tracks. Um, You know, they have a very distinct track that's different from the canids. Um, There's not the same symmetry. You can look online or in a tracking book to kind of see what I'm talking about. But they have very distinct tracks and they meander through um, very specific sorts of habitat types. They kind of avoid open areas. But um, and so you want to look for their tracks. That would be one thing. The scrapes are a great thing to learn. Uh, to keep an eye open for, because I, I just, it, you know, as someone that studied cougars, and I can't walk out in the woods and and in cougar country and. I mean, if they're not there, I don't see them, but it's amazing how often you pick up a a scrape that's like, oh, a cougar came through here. Um, Their kills, of course, you know, one of their evolved, we didn't talk about this, but one of the evolved behaviors of a cougar kill, their behavior is caching it. So that has evolved. And remember, these animals have been out on these, you know, the modern cougar has been around for, you know, a million years or more. and, And they evolved with a rich assemblage of large carnivores. In fact, much larger carnivores, right? Short-faced bears, the saber-tooths, the dire wolves, the hyenas, the cheetahs, all these things they're kind of overlap in space and time through into the Pleistocene. And and as a response to that competition, they have a caching behavior. So when they make a kill, they tend to cover it, uh, drag it, uh, uh, and under undercover, they conceal it, they pull out the hair, they shred the hair off and cover it up or scrape dirt, snow, branches, debris, and it's amazing how well they can hide it. It keeps the, all the bird scavengers from finding it as easily. It really helps protect and preserve the meat for longer if it's wintertime. When they bury it in snow, it, it, it prevents it from freezing as much, so it's more efficient to feed on when they uncover it. For all those reasons, um, they cache it, so they're hard to find, but you can see a telltale cougar kill often because of that caching bee behavior. Mm. And they usually leave a latrine, we call it their toilet, their litter box, that's usually away from the kill site to avoid it. And they'll go back and, and they'll defecate in the same spot and bury it like a cat would with a litter box. So you kind of keep your eyes open for those latrines, those covered cached kills, their tracks and those scrapes. Those are kind of all the things you would look for. So
1: thank you so much for sitting down with us today and sharing all of your incredible stories and wonderful knowledge about these amazing cats. Uh, We're just so grateful to be able to talk to you
0: that was fantastic Kristen. thank you so much thanks dan
1: we'll see you in the park see you in the park well listener that was a journey a huge thank you to wildlife biologist dan staler for helping us get to know this resourceful elusive animal and better understand their vital role in this ecosystem If you want to learn more about the Cougars of Yellowstone or see some videos of Dan in action, check out the Yellowstone National Park webpage on Cougars, which we will put a link to in the show notes. The Voices of Greater Yellowstone podcast is produced by the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, a nonprofit dedicated to working with all people to protect the lands, waters, and wildlife of this special ecosystem. As always, you can support the podcast by making a donation to the Greater Yellowstone Coalition. People like you make our work possible, so thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Also, if you head over to the episode page on GYC's website, you can help us settle the debate and vote on which baby critter is cutest. Wolf pups, grizzly bear cubs, or mountain lion kittens. Thanks for listening in, and we'll catch you next time.